0: Of the Jeffrey Barber Trust, I'd like to welcome you to the ninth annual Jeffrey Barber Memorial Lecture uh, and thank you all for coming. Uh, today we commemorate the ninth death anniversary of Jeffrey's, which falls on the 27th of May, uh, that's on Sunday. But the lecture, the last few years, has been happening on the closest Friday to his death anniversary, so this time it's uh, today. And uh, thank you all very much for coming for it. Um, if uh, any of you ever wondered what would happen if the architecture of Jeffrey Bauer and the Australian architect Glenn market were to meet and sort of coerdees of some sort, then perhaps you're in for a treat this evening. Having had an almost life changing meeting with Jeffrey in 1996 which was partly what put him on his current career path. Vijay Jain, the speaker this evening, uh, has made making a synthesis of the work of these two people, whose architecture he admired so much, um, part of his life's work. But this is not just done in any old way, but is done with a clearly thought out manner, always working with artisans and craftsmen, striving to achieve the meticulous precision of thought in every detail that goes into Merkut's work, to surround spaces that relate to the landscape and to each other in what you see in the built forms and and uh, uh, to the landscape and the context in which it is built with the sensuality and elegance that we all associate with Jeffrey's work. As he said to me over lunch today, the inbuilt error that seems to rise out of working with craftsmen and people like that in making architecture and making uh, artifacts that he does is something that he enjoyed very much. This, I may add, is perhaps opposed to the precision and coldness of some of the factory-produced buildings that we see in a lot of architectural practice today. Uh, this error is much like the Islamic practice of uh, of Islam- Islamic artisans. Leaving a tiny, small error of a carpet in a, in a part of a carpet as an imperfection, because of the notion that only God could be perfect. It is this ability to celebrate the human hand in his work and the work of his studio that I, for one, most admire in his work. But let me decide. Let me not decide for you. Let uh, I'll let you decide for yourself. So I present to you to deliver the ninth Jeffrey Bauer Memorial Lecture. Mr. Bijoy Jain.
1: Charnath, thank you for the introduction. <clears throat> it's a real honor and privilege to be standing here. Um, I could never imagine that this opportunity would come my way, and I'm very thankful uh, for having the possibility of engaging in this way. Channa mentioned that I met Mr. Bawa in 1996. This was, I've been to Sri Lanka several times from the 70s uh, and I had the good fortune. It was We were staying at the villa, you know, four friends and uh, I was told that Mr. Bawa was going to be visiting so I anxiously woke up that morning uh, in anticipation of his visit. And he arrived at 10, and I met him at the front door of the villa and introduced myself. I'm an architect, and at that point in time, uh, Mr. Bauer was working on a project uh, for my wife's sister. And so I just sort of introduced and introduced three other friends of mine who had nothing to do with architecture. And uh, while I was standing there, he had barely got out of his car and uh, looked at the gate posts that were being built. And so, if you know, ask me, you know, what do you think of the proportion? <clears throat> and that completely, you know, uh, threw me, uh, took me by surprise. And I kind of mumbled, jumbled, you know, trying not to commit because I had absolutely no idea, you know, how to look at it. And then, you know, as we continued to speak, uh, a friend of mine. Uh, who was unabashed, you know, not knowing who Mr. Power was, you know, just barraged him with several questions about the villa and the way it was, and he sort of was amused, actually, and uh, we were fortunate to be invited uh, to Lunuganga later that evening for tea and cakes. Now, what was interesting was I actually had very long hair that morning, and then we arrived at four in the, mo- at four in the afternoon at Lunuganga, and I had, at that point, between the days, shaved all my hair, so it was a... Sort of a surprise, but a sort of interesting situation. Anyway, over tea and cakes, conversation continued. And uh, of course, I was very familiar with Lunuganga and the whole project, the trees. I studied the plans over the years. And so I said I'd sort of take a small you know, walk, because now I could see the real thing and be as part of the real thing. And barely did I walk 10 minutes. Uh, so I was struck with the beauty uh, in a way that I wasn't able to actually see the entire project. It was so over- overwhelming that I actually sat down and, and took a rest and decided not to see the rest of Lulu because what I'd seen was enough and uh, would leave it for some other time. And we were very fortunate to have some time over the last two days. Anyway, I came back and uh, we continued to speak. and. Uh, it was a sort of very special moment, you know, like few drops of you know honey drops that uh, fall from the sky in a sense. And uh, Mr. Bowers, you know, we walked towards the front door of the house, and then he gestured, you know, looking at the far view at the, uh, down the lake, and then the stupa at the far end, and said that you know it's a continuous battle between uh, architecture, the view, and the landscape. And I did quite understand. I mean. You know, I, I soaked that in and sort of took that little uh, sentence and put it in my pocket. And then there was another one also that he talked about and said, it's, you know, a lot about uh, the landscape and the relationship of the landscape, and uh, that the building is, is 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 secondary to the landscape. And uh, this idea of you know uh, too much architecture between me and the view. And these sort of two very specific sentences, you know, caught my attention. But what more importantly was it was the beginning of a journey. It was a sort of a moment where I decided to, in some way, emulate uh, the kind of practice and the kind of freedom and passion that uh, he addressed the architecture. And also, just in terms of understanding landscape, because as an architect, you're trained to think about architecture, bricks and mortar, and all of that. And I decided when I went back to India, that I would start exploring this idea of the landscape, you know, beginning to learn how to observe the trees, the shape, the space, uh, the qualities in the seasons, uh, and it became a sort of you know rigorous exercise. And I said that if Mr. Bauer, you know, did it, uh, I should also practice uh, and learn from this. And what we did was actually set up a, a, a studio and a workshop in Alibad, Marsh. It's very much it's on the mainland. It's about a 40-minute boat ride from Mumbai to, across. Uh, onto the mainland India, and it's like sort of driving from Colombo to Gaul. Uh, and we set up it sort of a rural area 16 years ago. And when I th- reflect back and think about it, it was really the uh, turning point. Uh, it was the moment that, where something was unfolding. Uh, and I was also trying to find a place uh, in India uh, yeah, to sort of find a place of how could I practice as an architect, you know. Uh, It was very difficult. India is a fast-paced, you know, economically developing. Uh, The kind of buildings that were coming up were not the buildings that I was interested in. Uh, So it was more sort of a search, a sort of taking a torchlight in the dark, Uh, and that's really how this process began. So anyway, I'll talk more about the studio. Our studio is uh, primarily we have about we started with seven artisans and myself uh, in '96. And that now has grown to about 100, 120 people, and we have about now about 13 or 14 architects. But what more importantly uh, is that they actually participate in a way that uh, is more intuitive. It's sort of a tacit knowledge. Uh, we're a studio that is, in a sense, set in medieval times. You know, like the way architecture was built, I would say, in Sri Lanka or India or in Europe, you know, a few hundred years ago, uh, and actually not that long ago. Uh, so this is just a, a visual of the studio where you know uh, a lot of the work is done through gestures, storytelling, uh, full-scale mock-ups, you know, drawings, uh, and also this idea of you know cultures. I'm Indian, uh, grew, was born in the '60s, uh, grew up with you know listening to Dawes and Jim Morrison and Deep Purple and Levi's Jeans, you know, as well as my mother was a classical musician, so we had that at home. So this was a sort of mixture, I would say, uh, that I grew up in, and then I have these artisans, you know, who have come from a traditional background. Some from Rajasthan, Orissa, uh, Bihar, and they practice a culture that is, you know, that has been passed on from generations. Uh, and so, what for me was important was how to develop a dialogue. How do we sort of find a place that we can actually meet? We're still Indian, There's something that joins us, uh, but culturally we're quite different. Uh, in in many ways. So it was sort of this beginning, this idea of, you know, the possibility of making architecture through storytelling, uh, through memory. Uh, And so, anyway, I'm going to continue. So this is a workshop. Uh, Some more slides, uh, some more images of, you know, just the space. And a lot of the work is produced through making models. You know, we found that uh, this was the best way to communicate. I guess drawings, uh, models, you know, uh, paintings uh, objects anything as a means of communication tools of communication but what was what was interesting was that this was universal the language was quite universal and it allowed several people to participate at the same time So what I'm showing you are basically are working drawings you know these are conceptual models uh, these are artisans who are actually participating in the making in the concept you know we can discuss you know ideas of space through thickness density, Mass and they intuitively get it. I mean, there's a sort of intuitive, innate, you know, tacit understanding of this. And what we also found was that it was faster for us to do a full-scale cross-sectional mockup than actually make a drawing. Uh, and that way, we could actually stand underneath the space, you know, uh, look at it, uh, and actually participate. It would allow the client to participate. And so I'm just sort of, you know, setting up what is the nature of our practice. Is it possible to reduce some of the slide that's... Okay. This slide, what I like about it is this idea of postures in architecture. Uh, And I think, again, very prevalent in in this region of uh, uh, the the globe, you know, Sri Lanka, India, where we still sit down on the ground. Uh, But for me, it's interesting because this idea of, you know, uh, the question that I raise is that do traditions get lost maybe in the loss of postures? That if we lose postures, maybe some certain kinds of architecture, certain things uh, cannot be made anymore. You know, though the materials exist more than the techniques exist, but it's all about, you know, taking a posture in the making of architecture and also the proximity in which these materials are made. You know, there's a certain sense of a proximity that resonates in the process of making. So again, just sort of to give a brief background of you know, how we try to approach what we, what we do and, you know, why we do it this way. Uh, again, it's interesting when you see the, all fours, you know, the hands and the feet all connect in the making of the object, where it's a total complete uh, cycle of hand, body and mind uh, all engaged in making this thing. Uh, so I, I sort of stumbled upon this, of course, over several years just observing, you know, earlier you just take these things for granted. Uh, but later on, one begins, it's sort of like an osmosis, sort of seeps into the architecture and it sort of has, a, retains a certain quality. You know, about, talked about this idea of error and that's something that I'm very curious about because I think it's this idea of error through attention, you know, error through the process of making something again and again and again, uh, that you develop an intuitive understanding and in the process of actually making it at that, at that moment, is where it all matters. Uh, and it's not really an error that comes out of, you know, being lackadaisical or, you know, being inattentive. Or, or, But it comes out of a sort of very clear, precise understanding of that relationship. And I think that's where then the architecture can resonate. Again, just drawings. Uh, I normally would draw with a red pen, axonometrics. And these are our the working drawings, uh, you know, in, and that's how we discuss any decision. Uh, several, a minimum of three people are involved in, in making a decision. That's my head carpenter was you know, quite a young uh, at that time, but uh, sort of shamanic in a way. He had the sort of you know they could call upon sort of ideas and thoughts and details that they'd never done. I mean, I remember him talking about uh, talking to me that you know I wish i had paid more attention when my grandfather and father were teaching us, and this was at the age of 13, uh, where he talked about. The things that we're talking about, and he says, i never realized that these these things would be of value today." But interestingly, somewhere, somehow, you know, they're able to reach—I would say—deep down into their belly, you know, just by the environment that they lived in, and they're able to draw these uh, conditions out, these sensations out. But this is just drawings that they have learned on their own uh, that they use. Uh, normally for a project, we have a sort a of very basic uh, plan and a cross-section with some broad dimensions. But most of the work is actually done through memory uh, and making some physical registrations on site. Anyway, I'll start with uh, with uh, one of the projects. This is a house. Uh, it's in Alibag. And uh, what we found was this sort of hole in the ground. It's about 50 meters, a little less than 50 meters from the sea. And it was a house, a very large house for a family like three generations that would would live in this house. And uh, this was an excavation that existed, and uh, we decided to keep it as the sort of focus because it really was a well, uh, an artisanal, uh, or a system that that harnessed uh, sweet water, and you had the sweet water layer sort of resting above the salt water. So that's a meeting with our consultant, an 82-year-old gentleman. Uh, You can see the crutches, and he pretty much lost his life at 18 you know uh, actually fell into the well while constructing uh, while when he was young as an apprentice but then spent most of his life you know uh, in this sort of in the discipline of just well making so we consulted him he was local he's, he's a local gentleman and again you can see just this idea of gestures i was completely clueless so i really had to depend on uh, local knowledge uh, you know yes i had a trained uh, degree but not with with the sort of sensitivity that uh, I, I found, you know, in abundance. You know, I think uh, what's interesting is that one, when one thinks about India and even traditional India, most of the architecture was built without architects. And there's some wonderful architecture. So it was something to think about and something to tap into. So that's the community that's you know engaged in building the well. He's supervising the well. Uh, there were some very broad uh, drawings done. Actually this drawing was done after we uh, built the well and the whole idea was that it formed the belly button, I would say the belly button of the project, it sort of formed the center and uh, the whole house was sort of wrapped around the belly button as a gesture in a sense protecting the sort of center which was the source of water, a source of life uh, for the house. And in many ways the house sort of imploded or exploded out from this particular space. So the reason I'm showing it to you this way, is this is how I imagined the house actually emerging. Uh, And that really formed the core of the project. You know, at some point in time, the house would disintegrate. But what would still remain is the core value or the sort of the phenomena of the the site, uh, which would then enable again a reconstruction, maybe in a different way, but this would still remain as a center or as a source of life. Uh, So this is a a photograph taken in the monsoon and you can see it's high water. And then this is in the summertime. But also, you can see the slide on the right or the picture on the right that there's a watermark that's left, and that was a few hours earlier where it registered the high tide or the low tide. I, I, I that was the high tide. So in a sense, this wasn't was an organ which was living and breathing. It actually, you know, uh, registered time. Uh, you know, t- talked about the cycles of the moon. Uh, and I didn't anticipate or expect this. And what was wonderful was actually, in a sense, the senses—the visual senses that we are so attuned to in architecture—were actually compromised. Uh, and in many ways, you know, being in such close proximity to the sea, the sense of the ocean was heightened. You know, it's like taking a conch shell and putting it to your ear, and you hear the sort of ocean sounds. And that was the same kind of quality on inside the space. Uh, But also, again, it sort of tapped into this idea of you know an ebb and flow that happens in India uh, of the moon cycle. India still functions on a moon cycle or a moon time, where you see people exodus of people going back to the villages for farming during the monsoon. You know, festivals are based on the moon, and so it was sort of a phenomenon that I discovered. It wasn't intentional, uh, but just sort of interesting for me to observe that once when one of the senses is taken away, you can actually heighten and experience. That I never thought about in the making of architecture. So anyway, I'll read it forward, and that's that's the plan. You know, it's sort of this big courtyard in the middle. All the roofs basically take the water, the rainwater, and drop them down into the courtyard, and then that percolates through the plants and goes down to these sort of through these holes that you see on the right uh, and percolate back into the well. So it's this whole idea of regeneration or recycling. Uh, again, not so much with this idea of. Uh, sustainability, but I think it's this central core, it's a core value for that place. Uh, Rooms are are arranged around uh, the family, so different parts of the family occupy different spaces, and the black space in between is where they come and meet, Uh, so yeah that's... uh... what was interesting since it was a large house we we, uh, developed the plaster for this. And again, we built most of our projects right from foundation up. We developed the plaster, the color, you know, uh, look, you know, source the wood. And this is a sort of graphite color that actually mimicked the shadows that we found under the roof. And uh, so we actually uh, decided, you know, through that, uh, in the process of building the project, uh, you know, one was anticipating it to be white or, you know, off-white. It, it, it didn't seem appropriate and, and, and then one observed the shadow under the roof and that was the right uh, solution. And that's the plaster that, that mimics, the, the graphite mimics the shadow. And what's interesting is it actually reflects back uh, the landscape into the architecture. Again, for example, we have an abundance of light. So this idea of thickness, density, mass of light uh, was sort of very interesting uh, for us. And again, this idea of views, cross views, you know, being obscured by the vegetation, all that was very much uh, a part of uh, how this plan was perceived. This is a project uh, again on the same coastline. Uh, a client who was a writer, and he wanted to write a book, and commissioned us, and found this sort of very dense coconut plantation, and I was, I think, the only reason he. Uh, Purchased this plot of land was the fact that it was in close proximity to the ocean. But what was interesting for us was the quality of the canopy uh, that covered the site. It was quite unique. And uh, what was difficult was that there was no typology that I was aware of where architecture in a very dense plantation, a coconut plantation, existed. Normally, one would make a clearing and then build, uh, build, you know, build a project within that. And so we decided that is it possible in some way to retain these trees and not worry about the ocean? The ocean became a sort of secondary uh, condition uh, to the site. And that you can see the density of the trees. So it was like this colonnade of, uh, it was a colonnade uh, with the canopy. And in, in some ways, you know, light, uh, the sunlight uh, was naturally taken care of. And uh, so what we did was actually, you know, visiting the site again and again and again. And what I like is it's like a relationship. That by visiting a site, it's you often begin to, you know, uh, there's an evolution, there's an understanding that occurs over a period of time. Much of the same way that you'd meet a friend, cousin, girlfriend, wife, whatever. It, it, there's there's a time that's involved. Uh, and the, the model was really our working drawing. We made these models, they're fairly accurate. Uh, the carpenters make them, uh, precisely, then the dimensions are written, and they would actually measure. So we had a tolerance of, I think, 12, 6, between 6 and 12 millimeters, that, that's it. Uh, and then we, you can see on, on the slide above, it's basically a full-scale mock-up using the, the existing old trees, the old nut or betel nut trees, and we framed the sort of uh, box. Now, my carpenters are primarily car- cabinet makers from Rajasthan, and uh, so when I suggested that, you know, we, we're gonna do this, they said, there's no way we can do this. And uh, then I said, okay, let's look at it that you're just making a box that's 70 feet by 12 feet by 20 feet and they all nodded their heads saying, yes, 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 we can, we can do this. I don't know if it happens here in Sri Lanka, but in, in India, it's, it's, it, for me, what's interesting is yes and no is the same, you know, you gesture, it's yes, and if you gesture, no, and you sort of try to figure out which, you know, what's being said, yes, no, no, yes, and you kind of go between the two. And I think what's nice, I like, is the ambiguity that, that lies in between this yes and no, you know, yes, no, maybe. And it can move from, you know, through the day. Uh, so how, do, how does one find a way to work in this? Uh, again, I'm just talking about these are experiences, these are very specific, special moments that, that, that have helped us uncover, you know, uh, conditions where we normally get constricted. Uh, so it's this idea of unpredictability in, in the communication, also, that is very important. These are just what I was talking about, you know, models, uh, you know, very precisely done. So they also become their own entities, uh, their architecture by themselves, you know, without having to really build the whole thing, and they exist as objects unto themselves. And this is what we do. This is what they do. You know, from the initiation of the concept, you know, several things like these are continuously made, continuously made. And uh, the same people who make these models actually go to site and then construct the building. Uh, and they have a way to register the heights, uh, and it's sort of all uh, it's all done on, on on site. But also a lot through memory and all a lot through practice. So this idea of practice of making these things is very important. Again, inspiration of what we observe, what we see in, in you know, everyday life. Uh, these are beaten-up trees that were cut and I've, just, I've taken this fence uh, a while ago before even building this project or even thinking about this project. Uh, that's the anti-termite treatment down below that we're doing, which is the local palmier trunk is being smoked. And that's the project. And the whole idea was to sort of slip these boxes, uh, these wooden boxes that suggested. You no, know, it wasn't conceived when I first went to site. I'd imagined them to be these glowing lanterns, completely illogical. But that was the sort of inner voice, you know, this idea of a lantern that was suspended in the space. And I quite didn't really know how to get to it, and so it was just this exercise of surveying, you know, uh, making marks. Uh, also, this idea of a hybrid, you know, uh, between the tradition and the development or, or, or the sort of industry. So this idea of a hybrid, and Chana talked about Glen Market and Jeffrey Bama because I what I enjoyed is the romanticism, you know, this idea of, of space, the seamlessness, the ease uh, in which his projects sort of sit uh, and sort of, you know, just... Uh, Observe uh, the landscape, and, and I think in, in, in a very sort of effortless, easy way, without asking you to commit to something. Uh, on the opposite side was Glenn market you know, that I was also very fascinated by, and just the sheer precision in which he would go about making his buildings, you know, single-handedly, doggedly, and you know, oftentimes I would think that what happened if these two mixed, if these two, two came together, would was there a possibility of a third? Uh, And this was something sort of sitting in the back of my head. Anyway, it was not, uh, I wouldn't say it was conscious, but it was a thought that was there. Uh, So, part of this dimension actually of these these, uh, wooden boxes comes from three sheets of plywood, which are four feet wide, four feet by eight feet, so it makes 12 feet. And then we found this optimum dimension, uh, what might seem as a sort of array of trees without any logic. Uh, We found a dimension that resonated and sat comfortably. Uh, within the space left between the trees. So that's how we actually conceived uh, the, the project and the dimension for the project. Again, it's basically like a laundry, you know, it, it, the locals call it a laundry box, you know, uh, they call it a, you know, a mini bus, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Uh, but the whole basis of the project was that it, it was just a volume of air that was trapped, you know, that was suspended in this, you know, wooden, uh, wooden frame structure. All the colors, uh, everything was inspired by what was actually on site. They uh, had these beautiful irrigation channels that we continue to have, uh, and that was really the core, again, of the value of this project, where the structures at some point would, would uh, deteriorate in time in, you know, 50, 100 years, and what would still remain is the sort of main spine, which was this irrigation channel. But the colors of the, the walls were inspired by the lichen on, 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 the, on the trees. Again, here what was interesting was this idea of what's inside and outside, and not necessarily that you need to see the outside. And again, for me, a discovery here was, uh, what was interesting was that the atmospheric air that is outside uh, and the air that is inside the building are actually identical. Uh, because there's actually, there's no glass, there's no screen, it's just these louvers, and it sort of dissipates between the two. So while you're inside, you know, inside a covered space, you still get a sense of a very sort of strong presence of the outside, and when you move between the two, you don't uh, experience the difference. And again, this was you know sort of for me redefining what does inside and outside, or you know outside is inside, inside is you know we talk about uh, talk a lot about this uh, in what we do, and this was a fascinating experience uh, for me. And again, you know an accident that uh, I, I guess in some way also intuitive. Uh, uh, as an experience within myself, which was then experienced in this in this building here. I'm going to be quick, Sorry. And that's the space, so that's that's how you enter, and the whole idea of the front door was this water channel, and you sort of walk, you know, uh, rushing your hands, you know, running your hands through the water, Uh, And there's no door to the project, really. There's, you know, it's ambiguous. You sort of, you come into the central space uh, and it's a sort of two-sided, you know, infinite. You have the view of the horizon to the sea and then you have the view of the plantation, you know, uh, to the east. And that was really the space and you actually crossed over the space continuously. It's sort of like a resonance. If that was zero, you know, you moved between these points, between this point all the time. So we actually distributed the program of living on one side, dining on the other, and then the bedrooms were scattered between the two volumes. Uh, But again, it's sort of, there's a suspension, the idea of it being suspended, uh, like a boat being pulled up, out from the sea. Uh, And so these platforms are where, that receive these sort of wooden frame skeletal structures. And you can see one of them sort of skewed, because not, not out of intent, but that's what the site allowed us to do. We actually had to go back and make measured drawings. Uh, we had, uh, you know, the last year we had to publish uh, some work of ours and it took us five months to go back to a lot of projects and actually measure them uh, fairly accurately and, and draw them up. Till then we didn't really have drawings of these, these projects. Again, just, you know, the tests, the experiments, uh, to ensure that, you know, no, they're not experiments, that are tested through time, their engineering is tested. And oftentimes we rely on each other's knowledge. Uh, we rely on uh, the physical experience that we see around us in, in our neighborhoods. And if we are able to span four meters, then we accept the four meter span, saying that we have confidence and we have the ability. And we believe that you know, good architecture or, architecture or space can be produced with that limitation. So this idea of also being limited in many ways uh, for us actually works to an advantage, because this way we have the ability and the control, and we don't need to depend on an outside source. Yes, we do get it checked by the engineer uh, once we have conceived it, developed it, uh, just to get his nod off, uh, you know, to his sign off, but to actually take full responsibility for the project in every single way. Uh, We also maintain these buildings. Uh, This one is now six, seven years old, and we go back every year and look after these buildings. So it's a process of care also that's very important uh, as part of uh, what we do. And that's what I mean by the studies. These were the studies you know, this was a, the drive to the site, and at one point I discovered that maybe did, it, did, did the project come from here? Uh, and then at one point we stopped and actually measured the space, and it was actually quite close to what we had built. Even these different doors, which I very much enjoyed, you know, rather than everything lining up. Uh, so these were the things, this idea of osmosis in architecture, the idea of osmosis of learning, you know, of osmosis through time and familiarity. Uh, it was important again very important for us is that the architecture in some ways familiar or there's some familiarity for the people that are building but at the same time there's a space that they're not familiar with and it's in that familiarity that they're able to engage and through engaging slowly there's a discovery you know of of how this uh, unpredictable unfamiliar spaces opened up and for uh, i think for us what's important is it's not you know it's not a point where I draw them towards me or they draw me towards them. We're constantly working with each other to find a third space, you know, a third space that we're not familiar with and, and, and to anticipate the building in a way that we still quite don't know. We can sense it, but we don't know accurately what exactly is going to occur once it is completed. Uh, so that is very much part of our exercise that we continuously maintain in the practice. And that's the image of this idea of lanterns where it would actually dissipate light, in the evening would dissipate from, from inside the house onto the landscape, you know, cast light on the coconut trees, uh, cast li- light on the ground, and uh, that's, that's how, you know, somewhere in a very hazy way, I imagined uh, seeing the project. This is another house, it's on a barren plateau, uh, again in Alibak. Uh, and you can see this was sort of a deforestation that had taken place over a period of time in the last 60, 70 years. And uh, fundamentally, what this is is a courtyard uh, house. Rather than build boundary walls, stone boundary walls, we built these sort of four walls uh, that made an enclosure. We set it down in the ground by four feet. And then at the section, it met, came back flush with the ground. And the whole basis of this was actually to try and retain or slow down the water in, in a way that it would begin to regenerate the plants that had once been taken away. So again, the whole idea is that the landscape becomes the core value. The landscape, the, the way it meets the ground, the way the building meets the ground is really the core value. And for me, really, the project is, that's for me the project. Everything else was program and function and sleeping spaces. But effectively, there are four walls. And there are, on these four walls, there are these lightweight pavilions that sit on these walls and make an enclosure. This was these are photographs that were taken, I think, now five years ago. It's quite lush and green. And again, Mr. Bauer's idea of this battle between landscape and man or nature and man, I, w- I would I call it battle, but it's a relationship, I think would be more accurate and one with which you have to participate. Because if you don't participate, the forces of nature are so strong that they would eventually come and, 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 and take over. So it's a question of how much you colonize, how much you leave, you know, how much do you keep. And I found that, you know, as a very important exercise, this idea of, you know, how do we engage with what surrounds us, and how sensitively do we engage with what surrounds us? But so this project is really about about that idea of, you know, setting it in the ground, and if one doesn't take too much care, this idea of the landscape slowly inside the house. At this point, we were look. I was trying this idea of case study houses, you know, the Los Angeles uh, Schindler and uh, Neutra, uh, and to think about the appropriateness in our climate because it's tropical and you can have these open spaces. But anyway, you can see the sort of gestures of that. And again, these sort of just details that are very specific to our studio, we are able to make a lot of these things within the studio. Uh, So all the fittings, you know, specifically, very much in the way that I think architecture is practiced and has been you know, been made out here. That's, you know, part of the inspiration uh, that led us to do these kinds of things. And you can see that that's the outside and the inside and the difference in the quality of the landscape. This is an urban project. This is actually the city in Mumbai. Uh, It was an existing house and we had to sort of reorient the house because uh, the land that the house sat on had been subdivided. So the entire orientation of the house had to be reconfigured. And then we had to to add another extra space on the the top of what was ground plus one. Uh, So this is the part that faces the street and we basically cut it out and kept the existing concrete frame, tore half the house down. But what it effectively does is basically takes advantage of the landscape on three sides, and the fourth one being the road. We had this sort of wooden slatted screen, much like a wooden trellis, which in time would get you know, uh, which would act like a curtain, you know, uh, a wind chime if you want to call it, sort of having these kinds of suggestions, but also a privacy and a protection screen. Again, this project uh, we construct it from scratch, and you know all the handles, uh, the screen details. That's the mock-up we're testing the staircase and you know jumping on it on the right-hand corner uh, to you know check for strength. Door details of how they would open and you know shut. Uh, handrails and these really become the tools. These become what are leftover artifacts uh, for us that become part of the archive of the project. Uh, that's that's the project uh, and. Uh, again very simple materials this local kota stone uh, its timber and, and and brass and this idea of you know uh, of materials that endure and weather through time become very critical uh, for us uh, because there's a sense of personality and a patina that that, that is gained in this yeah. and i think also sometimes you know it's it's very simple materials it's a question of how you engage with them and how one uh, understands them that they can be sort of taken to another place, uh, I hope and I, I believe. So this is just uh, showing you the sort of the frame and the whole idea of transition. So it's a, basically a series of stairs that took you through uh, the project. They did this, this sort of vertical movement through the house was not like in one vertical strip, but you actually meandered and walked through the spaces, engaging in the public spaces of the house in, in a sense to meet your, you know, your son, daughter, uncle, aunt, uh, and then the bedrooms were sort of more privately arranged. And that's what we did was we rearranged, reoriented the house overlooking a park, which is a public park. Uh, and so they took advantage of that, of that uh, location. This is an interesting story. I mean, that gentleman there, we, we, we actually made the plaster. It's a lime plaster and you know, it was in March and he had gone back to Rajasthan to get the marble dust and he calls me back saying that, Sir G, you know, we've got a problem so i said what happened and he says you know what it just rained you know in in march in rajasthan where it never rains and because of that i can't identify the marble to make the marble dust so he said it's going to take a couple of weeks and we'll have to wait for the marble to dry and i was trying to figure out how am i going to tell the client you know that it's raining in the middle of the desert and now we have to wait for the marble to dry so we can identify the right marble from which we can make the marble dust but anyway i thought that we were just in hysterics you know just to think about this idea but that that was the extent of you know how these people engage in the sort of meticulousness in 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 the way that uh, they look at the materials again here the whole idea was that there was a hole in the roof There was a hole in the head, so to speak, of the house, and the idea that rain can enter, nature can physically enter into the project, and it's all about the question of care, engagement, uh, attention uh, that is required of the occupants. uh, So that you know, if you're not not so much alert, if you're not sensitive, or if you're not engaged, the potential for that to take over, for that idea of this project, you know. Uh, a ruin in a sense, but in a, in, a, in a beautiful way, where insects, birds, plants, all of that eventually will finally engage uh, with the project. And that's how it sits in a sort of urban setting. Two more projects, I think, and then... This is, this is a lodge, uh, a traveler's lodge that we did up in the Himalayas. It was for the same client who was writing the book, you know, with the two wooden boxes. And he sort of had this crazy idea of you know wanting to uh, uh, like the British you know who travelled up in the mountains they have these tents and they would sort of travel. He had a travel company and want you know to set up camp and move with all this uh, furniture that would fold up. But anyway, so he set up these tents on this side, that that plateau there you see. And of course, in the first season, they had a problem. It was heavy snow, and these were tents for the desert, and it didn't survive a season. So he said, can you go up and have a look? And so I did go up there, and I said, well, this, this is not going to work. But there's great potential, because there's this wonderful place where there's a, a sort of continuity of building that has you know, evolved through thousands of years. You know, Just dry stacks, and it's in an abundance. And these are primarily farmers who build their own projects and build their own buildings. And so I suggested, why don't you lease the land uh, from them? Uh, and maybe potentially we can you know, try and do something like that. I had no idea. I had no idea what it would cost. But I believe that you know, it had some potential. Uh, and so he went along with that. And in a sense, we wrote the software for the project. So we really sort of cleared the plateau. And that was the clearing was what was important. And then you can see the four rooms that are scattered on the different terraces uh, of, of the site. But again, here the whole idea was that 50% of the project would be built locally uh, and built in a short period of time. When, when are free, uh, because in the in the winter time they can't farm, and that's when they actually uh, they they collect and they're resting, uh, and that was the time they actually you know maintain and build their projects. So this is just a sort of atmosphere of the place. That's in winter time, and this is a slide, we basically practiced in the studio, we didn't really have a specific agenda or plan, and we went to site and sat down, and over a period of four days actually line, drew the full project at full scale on site, and you can see they're in disagreement, not agreeing, and you have to sort of sit over a cup of tea and, you know, uh, not make peace, but develop a relationship, saying that yes, you know, that's the sort of opener, like you share something. And then we started building the project. But these were sort of important. So the whole drawing and the entire exercise was actually done on site. And the building was conceived because a lot of it had to be carried 50%. The glass and the timber frame was actually carried. So we actually unitized it in a way that it could be hand carried. And you can see the pathways up. This was about 8,500 feet up in the mountains in the Himalayas. Uh, This is a wrecking of just the proximity of the material. Uh, To the building, and I just wanted to show you because this is what we saw and observed when we we went there several times. I think what was important again is it's all about proportion. and the moment we'd make it a bigger space or you know a, a different proportion, this entire integrity of the technology would be compromised. And this is something that we observed and learned. And then we actually were lucky that the client was not sort of engaged in sort of a very intense way that we would actually be able to make very compact rooms. Uh, again, just you know this idea of yoga. I mean, it's insane these postures that they take and they're able to build these, uh, the way they're able to sort of put these projects together. So uh, I think it's important just this idea of postures and what that means to material and what that means to space and what that means to making. You know, that's all embodied, I think, somewhere in in the physical uh, value of the space. And you can see just the sheer proximity of how women, men, you know, the children were there, uh, and it, it was all done in, I think, uh, a period of eight months, the entire project. What we also did was we used the people who built the project, they continue to maintain it, you know, no different from the person, you know, in, in a hotel who sort of polishes the brass railing. And these people go back and tap the stone in place and, you know, so there's a sort of uh, a day-to-day attention to the building and its nourishment. Uh, and it's a ritual in a sense that is practiced. Uh, it's been I think now eight years and they're still in very good shape uh, they, They're very simple buildings. They're no more than 10 feet by 17 feet rooms uh, And of course the lifestyle here is, is different from the way the people live there because most of the time they spend outdoors So when they go back to their homes, they actually don't you know, they have a more protected enclosure while people travelling to this place as visitors you know uh, it's very different you want to sort of lie down and sort of take a uh, 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 sort of view of the entire surroundings from the inside it's a sort of more i would say just a more uh, contemporary lifestyle so somewhere this idea of a hybrid uh, between the two sort of cultural conditions and farming you know the, the sheep all of that continues all that continues through through the different cycles of the season again what was important in this was that it was a 10 year lease and we had to dismantle the structure in 10 years i think the client is now another 5 years but we were not able to we were not allowed to build anything in concrete or anything permanent uh, it all had to be lightweight and and in such a way taken away uh, once the lease the lease had expired So for me, this is an important uh, big you know, view of that. This was, of course, in the process of making But this is how we imagined giving it back to them. Uh, and this idea of a hybrid, where we stumbled across, in a way I've talked about storytelling, where we came across this settlement that had been abandoned, and these walls were there. And you know, it was this idea of continuity, and sort of piggybacking on these walls. Uh, we built these new structures. Of course, it's a story, it's a fictional story, but in time, there's an ambiguity of what came first or what didn't. And that idea of, you know, putting something in place, so there's a sort of core, intimate, archetypal sense that exists in these places. And for me, this image is very important that sort of conveys this story uh, in, in the way that we actually constructed the site. This is the last project, it's a house we've recently completed, and uh, what's important here again is this whole idea of the well that makes the foundation of the house, uh, it's the beginning of life, and in, in a sense, and this was done you know, in early March of 2010, you know, Water Diviner with a coconut sort of walks around, and then at one point he stands there and says this is the point, and you know, one wonders. Uh, and we've been accurate nine times out of 10. You know, there's no scientific sort of measurement and this idea of you know, water diviner, divinity, to uh, this sort of perception or sensitivity to the ground. And so anyway, this had to be constructed in a month and a half. And what we did was use the soil as a backfill, uh, which you can see here in the section also. Uh, in the two clearings that were there, it was a paddy field, and that was the only place we could build. So we actually, through a, through a distance of 100 meters, move the soil and then used monsoon to basically compact the earth. Again, this area floods in the monsoon, so we needed to create a high ground, and you can see in section that it's, it's slightly more elevated than the rest of the existing ground. And what we were able to do in the process was allow for the ground and the water uh, that would be used to, to sustain the house. So the well really becomes a sort of very integral, important part of uh, the first mark that is made. Again this idea of adjusting soil because we didn't get any trucks so there's a balance that is shifted physically on site and so there's a sort of in a way to maintain an equilibrium uh, that you know when you displace the status quo of the site that there's a new equilibrium that is set in this displacement so anyway I'm showing you, you know, just the process of how that is a line out there's that little model that you see in the foreground and we check it and we adjust it and you know it's like a dance again you have to sort of you know figure out, What's, what's the optimum? And we like doing this only because there's a, at, at a certain point you find that it resonates at the right point. You know, It's not about one feet or two feet or one foot six inches. It could be 1.65 or 1.55. But it's, it's the gap in between that's actually more important and that's when we know it's right. So this is just exercise. And you can see that's the clearing, that's the house. Uh, it's a courtyard house and the whole idea of the courtyard was to release the anxiety of the site or the anxiety of the ground because this floods in the monsoon and it's sort of cutting a hole on a slab so it sort of releases the water of course it's higher up and also this idea of holding the anxiety uh, of the site because it's quite dense you know with mango trees and and with the monsoons you can actually hear the trees grow they sort of come crawling at you know they come at you you know light is darker it, it can sense to be uh, claustrophobic so this idea of this aperture in the middle uh, that is a space that actually is a place for, to hold the anxiety, to hold the anxiety of the site to hold the anxiety of the people quality of the drawings of these carpenters over a period of time. Some of them have measurements, some don't. Uh, but just this is, this is a working drawing. So they have about 20 sketchbooks on this particular project. Again, you know, local inspiration, osmosis, uh, structures very similar that I've seen here in, in, in Sri Lanka and even driving down to Gaul. Uh, many pictures that, are, that one has taken so I think where do these ideas come from where do where do memories lie you know they're all important very important sort of ideas in thinking about what what makes us uh, create the things that we do and I, I would say it's more like a monsoon house it's a house full of rains because the moment the rains come in, it sort of dissolves and dissipates, the whole house sort of, in a sense, dissolves into uh, into the water. And this courtyard really is is what absorbs this uh, season, I think. This was in construction. Anyway. But, uh... Again, here the tolerances are very tight, so that the, the space between outside and inside is only separated by 7 inches, and you'd, want, you'd wonder how do you manage this in the monsoon. But it's all a question of calibration. It's like the way we'd wear a raincoat or put, put, uh, put you know, the hood on our head. And it's a question of being, it's not about being uncomfortable or comfortable, but about being attentive to the climatic season, how to negotiate them, and what window do you keep open, and which one you keep closed, and how do you adjust it? All that becomes part and parcel of this sort of living entity, uh, you know, the human and the, uh, the architecture that, that sort of forms an envelope. Uh, again, this rock was very recently put in uh, as a sense of actually absorbing and holding uh, uh, the water, so sort of keeping the water pressed down. And it's a sort of uh, an odd condition because the stone would actually sink in water, but that's the suggestion of this rock that actually holds this entire project, holds the entire space, holds the entire you know surroundings uh, that rapid. You the idea of this taking reflected light rather than direct light. It's much softer, you keep the heat out. Uh, and there's a certain quality of illumination that one uh, gets from that. Very much in Kerala architecture that they would actually take light through reflection through the reflected sort of space between the eaves and the floor. And floors would normally be highly polished to sort of draw that light in and actually keep the heat out. And we've tried to sort of emulate and you know, learn from these exercises of what we've observed. This house is, the top of the house is wrapped in copper and and sometime I guess in the next several years it will basically patina into this and like a camouflage, you know, sit in the landscape. And that's again this idea of taking care of the ground. You know, this is, I think, I didn't talk about it, but we normally sweep the site and this idea of sweeping the site is not just about keeping it clean, but actually becoming familiar. You know, I think both our landscapes are, we, we have, you know, insects and poisonous snakes and, you know, so it's a way that traditionally, that's how they would manage with very limited means uh, without being actually uh, overwhelmed by the landscape. So this idea of sweeping that I find quite interesting, it's a sort of caressing or taking care of the ground. Uh, So I just like this idea of when we go to site, we actually, first thing we do is we sweep the floor and this practice is continued. Till the site is completed and it continues even after the site is made and it's just a way of being familiar with what you walk on. Even though there might not be anything, it's just this very sort of intimate relationship. I showed this slide just with the idea of uh, a moment in time where this idea of slowness and what that means and uh, that's what I wanted to share with you, thank you.
0: Thank you, Bijoy, for that wonderful exposition of your work, um, ladies and gentlemen. If you have any questions, um, you're welcome to ask them in the next 10 minutes. Um, so if there's any questions, please. I'm sure Bijoy will be willing to answer them. If not, we'll meet over a cup of tea outside, and then we could speak with him. Are there any questions that you might like to ask? Yes, Ismat. People get more literate; they lose their sense of artistic skill.
1: Do you think that? Uh, the question is: Do you think that when people get more literate, would they lose their artistic skills? Is that is that right? Yeah. But I think that, that, that is true of any, any of us, you know. Every time you gain knowledge or insight, uh, it, I, it, and this I speak, you know, also personally for myself, is how do you continuously reconfigure yourself? Because at some point, that then creates a status quo. So yes, it's an, it's an interesting question, that at, oftentimes, as they learn, there's a sense of a plateau. And the whole idea is how do you keep breaking this plateau, breaking the status quo? Uh, but I think that 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 is universal. It's not anything to do with the artisans. It's got to do with you know all of us. And you know, it's that you know how do you tweak the dial? How do you reconfigure? And again, that all comes to you know as much. How do I unlearn what I've learned? I think is has to remain sort of fundamental in this entire process. And part of this we are able to do with the things that we make because it requires you to be tact- you're tactile. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. And so that's what actually keeps this process of continuity of learning alive. You know, and I, I, that's the best way I could possibly uh, you know, address this question.
0: Seems like he's been uh, very clear about what he said um, so thank you very much ladies and gentlemen for attending this lecture and uh, thank you very much uh